We're in Luke chapter 2, and I will read Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. God's word says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there is no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Well, in 1972, Edward Lorenz gave a paper entitled Predictability. Does the flap of a butterfly's wing in Brazil set off a tornado in Texas? His purpose was to show that small changes in one seemingly insignificant part of the atmosphere far away from another region can lead to catastrophic effects farther away. And to use it, it was just like his title. He talked about how a butterfly flapping its wings in Brazil could cause change after change after change to the atmosphere till all of a sudden, far away in Texas, the center of the universe, a tornado happens. And his point was not that he actually thought this could happen or that it did actually happen, but rather the point was that underlying this was the reality that small changes in the atmosphere can lead to much greater and drastic effects down the road. And through the article, Lorenz became famous for having begun, established what is called the butterfly effect. You may have heard of that. And the idea is basically one small action can have huge consequences. One example in regular life that is often told of World War II, World War I, excuse me, where a British soldier, his name was Henry Tandy, was in battle. And all of a sudden he saw a German, and the German was wounded, and he was clearly not fighting anymore, but fleeing. And they looked each other in the eyes, and Tandy, seeing he was unarmed and fleeing, lowered his white rifle, and the man ran away. And the man later identified himself as Adolf Hitler. And it said, oh, if Tandy had only shot, think of all the devastation down the road that could have been saved, could have been spared. And you know, we often focus on dramatic events 
But it's a lot of small things that happened before that that led to those. Well, this morning, we come to a well-known passage, one that probably at parts you could recite by memory. However, as we reflect upon it, we realize that it occurred in seemingly insignificant places to really insignificant people. However, the humble beginnings were part of God's plan for this event, not just to affect a couple people in a small town, but the entire universe. You know, here we're told the humble beginnings of a baby's birth. And though no one is going to immediately notice until angels tell them, Luke is telling us of the vital signs of this baby's birth. No, he didn't give the time and the weight and length of the baby. He gave more important things, because as we'll see if you look at your outline, we'll see that this baby is of the line of the shepherd king. We'll see that this is the glorious Savior, Christ the Lord. And then we'll see that people respond to this child in different ways. Have you been following along with us in Luke? You'll remember that Luke was written to give an orderly account to a man named Theophilus about the historicity, the reality of the events surrounding Jesus of Nazareth. And he, from that point, went back and forth contrasting the birth of two children the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus. There was this dramatic announcement and a baby born to John and Elizabeth in their old age. Sorry, Zechariah and Elizabeth in their old age. Then there was a miraculous announcement through an angel to Mary who was going to conceive even without a man. And then it told of the birth of John and how everyone was astonished because though no one in his family was named John, that's what his parents named him in obedience to God. And when that happened... Zechariah's lips were open and he prophesied of this baby and of the greater one who the baby would announce. Well, the curtain, so to speak, then drops on that birth with the prophecy of Zechariah and the curtain rises telling of a different time. It's a decree, a decree from Caesar Augustus. And Luke records this because he's wanting Theophilus and others to be able to tie these to historic events. Oh yeah, we remember that decree from Caesar Augustus. Oh, we can go look up the reality of this. Now, they knew that, but we, today, people will question, was it really Quirinius was the governor? Which census was it? Did it really happen? And while there's good answers for all this, we have to realize Theophilus and the other first readers didn't raise an eyebrow and go, well, that didn't happen. You know, if Luke is trying to show the historicity of this and he can't even get the first couple words right, then it would immediately have been discredited. It was clearly a census that took place. When at their time, the Romans would allow the nations they had conquered, in this case Israel, to perform the census as they would do according to their custom. And their custom was to go to their birth of their ancestor's home. So Joseph, since his ancestor was David, goes to the city of Bethlehem. And he takes with him there his wife, or his betrothed, Mary. Now it's interesting that He has to go to Bethlehem. You see, Caesar, Quirinius, has made a decree. Augustus has made a decree. Why? Because they want to get money. But really, this is fulfilling God's plan. Because the one who was going to come was going to be of the line of David. And it tells us in Micah 5.2 that, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, 
from ancient of days. And Jesus being born in Bethlehem was being done purposefully because God was fulfilling prophecy and also symbolizing that Jesus was of the line of the shepherd king himself, King David. The adults may remember back when President Barack Obama was voted into office and then he was going for his initial inauguration, he rode a train on the exact same path that President Abraham Lincoln had rode on. He, time after time, tried to orchestrate his presidency and his run after Abraham Lincoln. His first speech, when he announced that he was running for president, he gave it at the place in Illinois where President Lincoln had given his famous house-divided speech. He was trying to say, look, I am the ushering forth of what Lincoln was trying to achieve. Here, the symbolism is similar. Jesus is coming in the line of Jesus. Jesus, sorry, Jesus is coming in the line of David, the great king, the one who is pointing forward to the greater and the final king who was to come. And so this birth is not just of any ordinary baby. It's the birth symbolizing from Bethlehem, from the line of David. So they go and she gives birth. You know, simpler language could not have been given. Doesn't say how long she was in labor. Doesn't say how much pain there was and all the other things around it. She gave birth, wrapped him, put him in a feeding trough. There's no heavenly announcement here. There's no glow around Jesus' head. Mary would have had pain like any other woman when she gives birth. As well, no one there is rejoicing. It's just Mary, Joseph, and the baby. In contrast to that, listen to Mark Train's words in his novel, The Prince and the Pauper. He begins by writing, All England wanted him. They had so longed for him and hoped for him and prayed God for him that now that he was really come, the people went nearly mad for joy. Mere acquaintances hugged and kissed each other and cried. Everybody took a holiday, and high and low, rich and poor, feasted and danced and sang, and they kept this up for days and nights together. You know, in his novel, Edward, the Prince of Wales, the future king is born, and the whole country rejoiced. The prince of all princes, the king of all kings is born, and no one even notices. Another night, here in Bethlehem, waiting for the census to be over, nothing going on here. No, the most important event in the world just happened. The king of kings was born. But not only does no one notice, he's wrapped in normal garments and put in an animal's feeding trough. You know, the, the descriptions here are so simple that Christians have tried to fill in the gaps, put in extra stuff to kind of fill out what might have happened. And some of those things very well may be true, but they very well might not be true. We don't really know. You know, it says here they were in this place because there was no room for them in the inn. Well, the word inn is not the same word as inn in the parable of the good Samaritan, where the good Samaritan went and took him to an inn. You know, they didn't have things like Motel 6s, Hilton, Marriott. No one's leaving the light on for them. You know, their houses would sometimes have a guest room called an inn. And none of the relatives, remember Joseph is in his family's hometown none of the relatives had room in their inn in their guest room as well were there animals in there were there not doesn't tell us 
Was this a stable of wood? Was this a stable in a cave? Doesn't say. All it says was it was a feeding trough that he was placed in. There's a lot of things that we just don't know. And while the passage doesn't explicitly condemn the people for not letting Mary come into their home, I think it implicitly does. Now I've heard people try and argue against this. Why are we trying to condemn these people? Of course they wouldn't have let her in. I've heard people attack. But it seems to me you've got to remember that this is Bethlehem. This is a government-mandated family reunion. This is everyone of the line of David. They're together. And no one in the family can go, you know what? We can sleep outside. We can let her. We can all sleep out there so she can have a room alone with Joseph. I mean, isn't there, shouldn't there have been someone who had didn't done that? Now, I think, and again, I have to admit, I can't prove this because it doesn't say. But I, I think... Tied to this is the shame around Mary. Who would let her come into their house? You're going to condone that kind of action? You want your daughters to be around a woman like that? And so Mary has her shame where they have to go off alone. Again, I have to admit, I can't prove that. But I think it goes along with Jesus' life where he was known with sinners, with outcasts, even from his birth. And so the king of kings is born, rejected and shamed even by his family. But this was purposeful. God could have caused this birth to have happened in any way. But this was fulfilling even in very practical ways what Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says about Jesus. Because though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. Not just in the likeness of men, and he's going to come as the son of royalty on earth, though he is in the line of David, but to humble, poor people. Humility, not just in becoming a human, but humility as the type of human and life he would live. Jesus had lived for all eternity with unspeakable riches, riches that we can't even grasp in every sense of the word rich, emotionally, <coughs> financially, materially, everything he wanted, he had. And he gave it all up to be one like us. And again, not to be with the rich and the famous, but to be with the poor and the downcast. So why would Jesus do that? It's so that he could be one of us, so he could be like us, that he might be tempted and tried like us, and that he would understand our temptations and trials. So that we can no longer say, no one knows what I'm going through. No one understands. Jesus came and knows not just in his head, because he knows all things. He knows in his experience what it's like to be lonely. What it's like to be betrayed. What it's like to be outcast and not know what's going to happen. He came to left to learn trust in his father. To learn how to deal with all the trials and temptations. And he humbled himself to come alongside us and then he calls us to humble ourselves and trust in him. And that's why throughout scripture we're told God rejects the proud but gives grace to the humble. But while there's not any immediately earthly recognition of what's occurred, a few miles away in a field we'll see that heaven is going to pour out praise for what happened. In verses 8 through 14, 
we're going to see that it's declared that this is the glorious Savior, Christ the Lord. The second point, the glorious Savior, Christ the Lord. And the scene again, the curtain drops, and now we're lifted up, not at, who knows, cave, but stable, we don't know. But it lifts out, now we know it's in fields, fields of Bethlehem. And there's shepherds out there keeping watch of their flock by night. And now we often tend to either romanticize, oh, shepherds, oh, they're wonderful, or villainize, oh, horrible shepherds. These guys, but it's a little of both. Shepherds, that's what Moses and David did. That's a wonderful vocation that they had. Shepherds at their time, though, were told that they were robbers. They were not the high class of society. And yet, to those who weren't important in their society, to those who had little power, that's who God chose to make the announcement to. He makes his announcement to the lowly and insignificant. You know, it's interesting. It's to a humble couple and then to humble shepherds that God both brings the Savior and the news of the Savior. And the angel appeared to these shepherds. Now, this is the third angelic appearance. An angel appeared to Zechariah, telling of the birth of John. Angel appeared to Mary, telling of Jesus coming. And now an angel appears to the shepherds. Now, put yourselves in the shepherd's sandals for a second. It's pitch black. You're out in this field. Wolves want your sheep. It's dark all night. You just hope to keep the sheep alive. And all of a sudden, there's this bright light. And then a being is speaking to you. You know, they fear. So we would be doing, what's going on? But the angel responds, telling them not to fear. They don't need to fear because he has good news of great joy and he's filled with glory it tells us in verse 9 an angel of the lord appeared to them and the glory of the lord shone around them and they were filled with fear now this is very symbolic and very important theologically because you have to remember that the glory of the lord was with adam and eve but then they lost it due to their sin but then when god restored Israel out of Egypt and as he led them through the wilderness he gave them the tabernacle and the glory of the Lord came down because he was showing here I'm bringing my presence back and then when they instituted the temple and transferred to the tabernacle the glory of the Lord came down but then you may know in Ezekiel as Israel sinned God took his glory away from the temple this is the first time that God's glory has come again to earth since it left with the leaving in Ezekiel. And God is declaring, I am restoring my glory to earth I'm, because I'm bringing my son. He's coming to bring God's presence. He is God's presence. And God's glory will again be seen in Luke 9 when Jesus is with his disciples, again showing God is bringing his glorious presence to be restored to us. And so the angel tells them not to fear, because this isn't something coming of judgment. This is the coming of good news, of glad tidings for all the people. And I think this should cause us to reflect. Is there great joy in your life? You know, this is glad tidings of great joy, and we've all heard this story many times. And does the news of Jesus bring you joy? Or is the news of Jesus just the same old story? You know, are you here because 
I have to. Parents would be upset. They wouldn't let me not come. Or you're here because it's a delight. I want to be here. I want to hear the news of the Savior. Now, I understand that we all have moments of fluctuating joy and lack of joy in God, but is there a bubbling up of joy that the Savior has come? You know, a burden of my heart is that I can study all these wonderful things and preparing and going to seminary and all these things, and they can just become mundane. Oh, yeah, I know that truth. Oh, yeah, I can explain that doctrine. And eh, it doesn't impact. It doesn't stir me up the way it should. And it's a burden I have for you all, too, because I know people have told me, oh, yeah, I, I know that already. And yet it shouldn't be, I know that already. We should pray that God would stir in us the joy and relevance of these truths again. In 2009, an app for smartphones came out. It was called Hipstamatic. It's real. And it won an award for the best photo-taking app. It was the best one out there. However, another app came out at the same time, about the same time. You've probably heard of this one. Instagram. Instagram didn't win any awards for being a great photo-taking app. But what they realized was, unlike Hipstamatic, people are going to get bored of the best photos. It's mundane. It's boring. Yeah, great pictures all over the world. Who cares? So Instagram realized what we need to do is we need to tie this to people. So there's constant feedback, rewards. People like my pictures. And so now, nine years later, though you can still, with a handful of few good photographers, use Hipstamatic, you can, with the millions, have Instagram. Why? Because what's great, eh, eh, it gets old. It's boring. What is what everyone cares about? That's what excites me. That's what gets me going. It's not the best, but who cares? It's what everyone else cares about. You know, as humans, we constantly want what's novel, what's fresh, and we have to be careful in our search for what's novel. We don't give up what's most valuable. You know, water isn't the newest drink on the planet, but it's pretty valuable. And we got to realize that sometimes the most valuable things don't always appear that way after time, but they are. And this is not just 21st century people of electronics. King David, thousands of years ago, Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Throughout time, people have let their hearts get attracted with all these other things. And we have to constantly be bringing our hearts back to the Lord, doing things to stir them up, doing things like reading, desiring God. Sorry, this will be the last plug for it this morning, but doing things with other Christians that work up the soil, loosen it up so the nutrients can go down and the plants of life can come up. And again, if you can't do that study, we'd love to meet with you other times or other Christians. Meet at your workplaces or get together with friends. Talk about the Lord and stir one another up. The joy of what God is doing, what God has done and who he is. But this really causes us to ask, well, what's so joyful about this announcement? Well, it tells us, verse 11, the angels declare that a Savior has been born for them this day. Now, those words are so familiar, the shock of it probably went past you as it easily goes past me. To who did they say the baby was born? To you. 
It didn't say, hey, there's a couple, Mary and Joseph, they've had a baby born today. No, to you has been born this day. You know, God sent his son, not just to Mary and Joseph, he sent him to us all. You know, and again, this is not just something that's going to happen in the future, it's happened now. The long-awaited Messiah, the Savior, is here. Today, they're saying, you know, Martin Luther once noted that Christmas, I know we're not at Christmas time, but the meaning of Christmas becomes true to us when we move past that he came for the sins of the world and that he came for the sins of you and you and you and me. That the Savior has been born to me is when Christmas, when the meaning of Christmas with Christ comes alive. I don't mean in any physical sense, but in our own life. Well, the angel then goes on to describe the baby with three terms. He's Savior, Christ, and Lord. And Savior, because as Matthew says, Jesus will save his people from their sins. And as we go through Luke's gospel, we'll see all the effects of this. Saved primarily from the punishment of sin that we deserve. But also, this is going to lead to salvation from all the effects of sin. Death illness, all these other relational things that happen due to sin. You see, Jesus came to be the Savior of the world so that we might be delivered from the power, the penalty, even the presence of sin. Now, there's lots of things we need in life, but they're not always our greatest need. We need health. We need relationships. We need money. But our greatest need is not better finances, it's not a newer, better relationship. It's not improved health. The greatest need we have is being restored to God because our sin has made a barrier with Him. And Jesus came to save us, save His people from their sins. But not only is He the Savior, He is the Christ. That's the Old Testament word for Messiah. Now, it's interesting. If you read the Old Testament, the Messiah is never considered the same person as the Savior. The two are talked about. God is the Savior, Messiah will come, but in Jesus, the two are united together. That the Savior is the Messiah because He's more than a man. He is God who became a man that He might be Savior and Messiah. But not only those, He's Christ the Lord. Lord means ruler, master. Jesus came not only to save us from sin, but also to be our new Lord, that we might follow Him. And so we trust all of Him. We trust Him as our Savior, as our Lord, as our Messiah. Thus Romans 10.9 says, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Your Lord is one of the Old Testament titles for God. And thus this is not just any baby being talked about. This is God in the flesh. J.I. Packer explains it very well by writing, Jesus was not just a God-inspired good man, nor was he a super angel, first and finest of all creatures, called God by courtesy because he's above men. Jesus was and remains God's only son, as truly and fully God as his Father is. Well, the angel then says, they will know this is true. So how are they going to know this is true? Because they're going to go find a baby in a feeding trough. Could there be more anticlimactic words? The greatest news in the world. And 
you'll find a baby in a feeding trough. Even shepherds know that you don't put babies in feeding troughs. You definitely don't put the King of Kings who's come to be the Savior and Lord and Messiah there. I mean, you can almost hear today, 2,000 years later, their gasp. What? They can't believe it. But why? Again, because He came in a humble way. You know, from beginning to end, the life of Jesus was surrounded by people that the world doesn't befit, think befit a king. That's why Jesus is called a friend of sinners. And who is he crucified by? Two robbers. It's because he is a king who came for those who need help. Not for those who don't need help. He came to be with the poor, the broken, the needy. And so to realize, as Martin Luther said, that Jesus came for you is to realize that you are poor, broken, and needy. Sure, we have material wealth, but no amount of material wealth makes you wealthy before God. You know, it is to the poor that God looks. Those who realize their poverty before God, they realize we our need for Him and our broken condition. That's why God says in Isaiah 66, This is the one to whom I'll look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And thus it is appropriate for the king who comes to be amongst his people who are in humble circumstances themselves. But though they're shocked, they're even more shocked the shepherds are because now there is a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God, saying glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. Glory because God's glory has come in peace because of this baby who's going to bring peace with God, and then, due to that, peace with one another. So the vital signs of the baby have been given. Not his height, not his weight, but who he is. The vital thing is we need to know that he's the ruler over this whole world. He's the Lord. He's the long-promised one. He's the Messiah. He's the heir of David who came to save his people from their sins. To be their king. However, we can't just hear this information. We have to respond. And Luke ends this passage by giving three different responses to this child. And so we'll end in verses 15 through 20, seeing the various responses. Verse 15, the shepherds, they talk to one another and then they go. They agree, we should go see this. We should see if this is real. No, they didn't deliberate. They didn't pontificate. Are there really angelic beings? They didn't discuss the physics of intergalactic travel. How did they, well, how would angels get here? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't real. No, they have seen and heard and they go, we must respond. We must go see this Messiah. And then after they go and see for themselves, what do they do? They go and make it known to others. You know, these are the first evangelists. They go and tell of what they've seen and heard. John MacArthur writes, Usually the most bold and passionate people in proclaiming the gospel are the newest Christians. The longer people are saved, the less excited they seem about their salvation, and the less eager they are to share their faith. But true spiritual commitment is determined by the quality and tenacity of believers' long-term joy over their salvation. One measure of that joy is how eagerly they share the gospel. 
lack of the zeal and passion that compels believers to tell others about Christ betrays a sinful heart of indifference and ingratitude. And sadly, that's a true statement. And for many of us, we've been believers for a long time, and so we have to fight. We have to fight that the depth of our knowledge of God does not become misapplied into boredom, but rather that it overflows in praise in our lips to our friends, our co-workers, our family. You know, even now, has this been another you know, boring sermon? You know, no doubt, I bear a large responsibility to make the truths of God clear and compelling, but you bear responsibility for how you hear them. You know, I, I've had the privilege, the burden of talking to lots of people when they've had serious health conditions, and they relate to me what their doctor said, and not once has any of them said to me, you know, as they were telling me how I might die, I was really bored. I just really didn't care. You know, I've had some of them tell me the doctors had a really bedside ma- bad bedside manner and didn't explain it in a good way or were kind of harsh in how they said it. But they almost always then went back to talk about their serious condition and what needed to happen. And we're not just talking about your temporary physical health. We're talking about your eternal spiritual condition. And there's nothing boring about it because the Savior has come to deliver you from what you have no hope of without Him. So don't be distracted by the messenger, in this case me. Focus on the message. Focus on the Messiah who has come in the flesh. And so these shepherds, they show us the proper response. Search, joy, respond and tell others. But then we see a second response, verse 18. Those who they tell, and it says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Here's a second response. It's marveling at these things that have happened. You see, the problem is if it stays at marveling, this is a very dangerous response. And yet it's a common one. It's one that people have in our country twice a year. They show up at Christmas. Oh, it's wonderful what's happened. And then they show up at a church at Easter. Oh, it's wonderful what's happened. And between Christmas and Easter, there's no wonder. There's no delight in the Savior. It's short term. It does not last. It's what we saw earlier of always wanting novelty. As we've read through Luke, we saw that many wondered. They were marveled at John's birth. However, the wonder didn't lead to real faith. These are like the seeds that Jesus describes in his parable of seeds. It says in Mark 4. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. Or we might add, they hear with wonder. Oh, wow, that's wonderful. But they have no root in themselves. But endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. These are the ones who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold, sixtyfold, and a hundredfold. You may have seen the movie The Truman Show. Jim Carrey starred in it. And the show began at Truman's birth. Every single day of his life, he's been in this huge dome that has cameras hidden all over it. 
And the show's been going on for decades, and people love the show, but everyone knows it's a show except Truman. He just lives his life. I won't ruin the whole movie, but at the end, the movie kind of climaxes as Truman begins to realize something's amiss, and then he steps out of the dome. And so the show ends. Now, people have been watching it for decades, and as the show ends in the movie, people are cheering, they're going crazy, oh, they're screaming up and down, they can't believe it. And they show two guards who sit in a parking lot, and they're sitting there in their little booth, and they're watching it, and they're giving each other high fives, and they're yelling, they can't believe it. And then the screen goes static, pre-digital days here, and there's the fuzz on the screen. And two seconds later, they go, what's next? And the other goes, yeah, yeah, what else is on? And sadly, that's how many people respond to Christ. It's the American mantra, what's next? We marvel, even at comics. We think they're great, but then we move on. What's next? What's better? What's coming after that? You know, this message will prove harmful to you if you don't respond with a joyous life of devotion to God. These wanderers are a warning to us. Don't just marvel, wonder for a time, but then go on in your life. Marvel for all your life and realize, oh, I want to turn to the Savior. I want to turn from my sin and trust in Christ the Lord. Marvel that this one who lived for all eternity with perfect bliss with his Father came and gave up all those comforts that he might be one of us. That he would give up the comforts and joys of heaven and enter into the trials and tribulations of earth so that we might be restored to him. You do as it says in verse 20, that the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God. It wasn't just they went and saw, but they went on. Active, ongoing, glorifying and praising God. But there's a third response here. It's verse 19. That's of Mary. What does Mary do? She treasures all these things up. As we've seen, I don't believe she yet realizes who this is fully. She realized her child is great, but not yet that he's the son of God. But Mary's response is somewhat in the middle. She's heard. She's storing up. She's thinking. She's mulling over. What is all these things that are happening? And she's going to then have to respond with belief or unbelief. And as we go through the stories, we'll see that she responds in belief. And yet we all have to be at that point at some moment where you're hearing the truths and you're going, am I going to respond like the shepherds with joy all my days? Or am I going to respond with the people? Oh, that's neat. What's next? But don't stay there. If you have questions about who is the Savior, what he did, come talk to me. Talk to Keith. Talk to others here. And no, don't stay on the fence because you can't stay there forever. So a decree went out from Caesar Augustus. The decrees and actions of the powerful, the rich, they grab our attention. You were constantly looking up, oh, look what they did, look what they have, look at what they can do. And yet this story is showing us that a greater decree went out than the one from Caesar Augustus. It was the eternal decree of God that decree that since he so loved the world, he would send his one and only son. You see, God looks down and the incarnation of Jesus shows us that what matters 
is Him looking down on us. It's His love for us that is most significant. Philippians 2, what did He do? He humbled Himself. And so our gaze shouldn't be on everything on earth. Our gaze should be up at Him. This amazing Savior who is Christ the Lord. And that should cause us, as we read in Philippians, to humble ourselves. You know, we're not at Christmas, so you haven't been hearing this phrase thrown around. But when we get to the Christmas time, you'll hear granted about the Christmas spirit. You know, the Christmas spirit really should be nothing different than the Christian spirit. And that is the spirit of humility that causes us to think of others more important than ourselves. That like Christ will enter into their poverty to love and care for them. You know, it doesn't take the Christmas spirit to love the powerful, the funny, the attractive, the wealthy, the charming, those that have their life together. It takes the Christmas spirit, the spirit of Christ, to love the weak, the ugly, the smelly, the socially awkward, those whose lives are constantly falling apart. Those whose lives you've helped get back together and before you turn around, they mess it all up and you have to turn around and help them again. It takes the Christmas spirit, the spirit of Christ, to love the spouse who hung the towel up the wrong way again. The sibling who keeps singing that song for the 50th time. The neighbor who leaves their trash can always on our side of the fence. The co-worker who everyone hates. It takes the spirit of Christ to love those that everyone else finds unlovely. Because that's who Christ loved. He loved us, the unlovely. J.I. Packer writes, There are many whose ambitions in life seem limited to building a nice middle class Christian home and making nice middle class Christian friends and bringing up their children in nice middle class Christian ways and who leave the sub-middle class sections of the community, Christian and non-Christian, to get on by themselves. The Christmas spirit, he says, does not shine out in the Christian snob. For the Christmas spirit is the spirit of those who, like their master, live their whole lives on the principle of making themselves poor, spending and being spent to enrich their fellow humans, giving time, trouble, care, and concern to do good to others, and not just their own friends, in whatever way there seems need. Has there been a butterfly effect in your life. We're not talking about a butterfly in Brazil. We're talking about a baby born in Bethlehem. Has that baby set off a tornado in your life? Or tornado, if such a thing could occur, for good? Then in the wake of the tornadic path of your life is the broken and outcast, lifted up and loved. Or has... All the Bethlehem baby done is pad your life. You have a better sense of well-being. You got a better understanding of finances. You have a better moral compass. Well, all of those things are good in their place, and I hope you have all of them. But the baby came not only to deliver you, but to set you spinning. With tornado-like force winds of love, compassion, and care, as he did for you. He came humbly to be your king, your savior, your Lord. He came for the poor and the broken 
And then he sends those who are poor and broken to go and lift up those who are poor and broken as well. Let's pray. Oh Lord, awake our souls to sing of him who died for thee. Lord, may we rejoice. May we see the Savior who came and may our lives be affected, not just in a moment of wonder and then moving on, but would our entire lives be shaped by you, by your Son who came. It's in his name we pray. Amen.